Hey, everybody, I'm John Halpin. Welcome to Broadhead HMH Agency's Future of Transportation podcast. Uh, I'm here to continue our series of chats with experts in the transportation industry. And with me today is Lee Malloy, head of electric vehicle battery solutions at Cox Automotive. Lee, thanks a lot for joining me today. Oh, my pleasure. Glad to be here, John. Yeah, this is a topic I've actually been dying to talk with someone about. So I'm glad this this worked out um, and I'm going to have tons. So um, I know people say there's no stupid questions, but there might be stupid questions. I can't promise that. So we'll see how things go. Sounds great. OK, so um, actually, I have one early question. When people find out what you do for a living, it's interesting. Now, it's very topical, right? In addition to being interesting. Is there a question you get asked more than anything else? Like, is there a common, you know, is it what kind of car should I buy? Is it what are batteries like? Is there anything that kind of sticks out? And I don't put you on the spot with this one, but I'm curious. The things that stick out, I think the the good news is, right, we're over the bubble of our EV is going to be around for a while. And now there's questions about when should I buy? Will range improve? Do you have any insights on when charging infrastructure is actually going to be you know, sufficient to support my needs? Those types of questions. Got it. OK, yeah, I'm sure you're going to. And that's not going to stop for you for a while as people adopt. So that's good. <laughs> um, so EV, I mean, you talked about getting over that hump. EV market share is expected to grow nearly seven times by 2030. I think I got that from one of your presentations, yes. actually. <laughs> Um, can the bat- can the battery industry keep up with the demand that it's going to see over the next, you know, five to 10 years? In the short term, absolutely. But I think you've, you've asked the right question because it, it ultimately, you know, is a supply chain constraint. And, you know, there, there's been a lot of great articles about the, the rise of the electric vehicle and, you know, they consume more chips than your normal combustion vehicle. But, you know, most importantly, they have a big battery pack and right. those battery packs require cells and those cells are produced at gigafactories. And in order to make a cell, you need the right critical mi- minerals in the right amounts. Um, so everything has to be kind of firing on all cylinders. So, you know, the U.S., um, is set to bring 13 gigafactories online by 2025, which will go a long way to our, you know, resiliency of our U.S. supply chain. Um, a lot of the action takes place today in China, more so growing in Europe, but it is a key constraint and um, one that could potentially meter the pace at which EV adoption accelerates. Gotcha. Okay. Um, how does I mean Cox Automotive? That you don't make batteries. No. Right. You 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 have another uh, contribution to the solutions surrounding this issue. Can you kind of explain what they are? I'd love to do that. So where I get to focus my time working with a really talented team of problem solvers and innovators is around EV battery caretaking. So the industry has given a lot of um, energy and focus to new electric vehicle production. Um, but the the less considered um, component of EV production is what to do with these vehicles once they're out in the wild and specifically what does caretaking of an EV battery look like so that's that is where my organization and my team's primary focus is so we do everything from storage to logistics and none of those things are easy given the size and you know characteristics of an EV battery but where we specialize is in first life extension or EV battery repair or we manufacture. Um, and we also do 
um, end-of-life EV battery recycling as well. So if it's not a candidate for repair, we're able to properly dispose of that battery pack and create black mass for use in the next battery cell. Okay. So you talked for the, I want to address first life extension first. So now a lot of the, the manufacturers are doing what eight year, hundred thousand mile warranties on batteries. That's, Is that about the that's standard? The norm. Eight to 10. Yep. Okay, so now how, how do you, uh, it, so, so you, basically what you're saying is, is, is that we're trying to make batteries that last longer? Is First Life Extension, is that, is that a, a good description of First Life Extension or am I uh, missing it? We approach it with OEMs and in partnership with their dealer network, we help service and support a battery that might be sick. So we offer you know, certified repair um, remanufacturing refurbishment routines if that mm. battery pack is in warranty. We also do similar, similar work if that pack is out of warranty. And in the near future, that's going to be you know a growing consideration. But it's less about the upfront design, more about okay. now that that battery is out in the wild, how can we work you know with OEMs and dealers to make sure that that battery pack you know lives its fullest first life. So one of all this is that you know repairing an EV battery pack. Um, reduces you know, what consumer spends to replace it by almost 50%. And it also makes environmental sense because you're not going back to the earth to mine new minerals to produce a new battery cell. So the more that we can repair and extend the first life of that battery pack, the better um, makes economic and environmental sense. Okay, because because EV batteries are not cheap to replace, right? That is that is completely accurate. And the, the EV battery pack drives anywhere from 30 to 40% of the value of a new electric vehicle. So we're talking big dollars here, right? Yep. So we want to do all we can to extend that first life. And even when it's at the end of its automotive life, you know, we offer options for repurposing into energy storage before we jump to recycling. Got it. Okay, so so I want to ask more about energy storage at the end of life. So can you explain? I, I've read some about this, but I know you can articulate this way better than I could. So you, I have this EV battery, and after however many years, it's not necessarily you know suitable for a vehicle anymore. What what happens to it, and what do you want to help happen to it so that it can be environmentally friendly, not go to waste, etc. Good question. So. Usually an EV battery is deemed end of life for automotive purposes when its capacity reaches about 80%. So mm -hmm. then you've got some options. Do I repurpose it into energy storage or do I recycle it? And the way the industry works today is um, I'd say energy storage is a growing application, but still somewhat of a niche play here in the U.S. where you have to first diagnose the health of that battery in combination with you know a whole bunch of other batteries that you would just deploy into this energy storage system and then you need to have a buyer who purchases those batteries and does the right software configurations to make sure that they'll work and can talk to each other appropriately in this new application of energy storage but it is an important way to one extend those useful lives of those batteries and also provide more you know stability around energy storage so that we can you know improve things like peak level shaving so that key energy consumption times can be offset with stored energy so that the grid is not taxed. So I think we'll see more to come in the future with energy storage and ways to, to sort of peak shave as the industry calls it. Um, but we're, I'd say in the early days of that in the US. Got it. Well, what are the most 
common applications for energy storage like that? Um, you know, they vary. I mean, you know, you have seen examples where in Europe, you know, it drives lighting for um, sports stadiums. You could have another use case where even, you know, homeowner uses it to power their home. So I think it runs the mm. whole gamut. Um, right now, you know, it can be a little bit costly, again, to ensure that the, the batteries are talking to each other, that they have the right software, and also that those batteries are maintained. Um, so that's, I think, one of the um, innovations that is needed around energy storage is just um, ways to improve yeah, the, the cost utilization of those packs. Okay. Um, backing up a little bit to the manufacturing of the batteries, are they, so uh, one, let's say, it, it, I, I, this might be a misconception and I'd love to talk about it, about EV batteries being not so environmentally friendly to manufacture. It, how much of that is true and how is that improving? Because it, it seems to be improving, right? Yeah, well, and I'd say, you know, it depends, right? There's been a lot of research about the carbon impact to produce an electric vehicle versus a combustion vehicle, Wall Street Journal to MIT. And, you know, common belief is that to produce an electric vehicle, there is a larger, quote, carbon tax than to produce mm -hmm. a combustion vehicle because you're mining minerals from the earth to produce the battery pack, and it just therefore takes more energy. Um, where you start to see benefits is after, say, 20,000 miles or so are accrued on that vehicle. And assuming that clean energy is used to power that vehicle, if it's an electric you know, about 20,000 miles, you'll, you'll reach a tipping point where the carbon footprint of an electric vehicle will improve and exceed that of a combustion vehicle. But it does take a little while to get there. So with Tesla owning it for a little while, now the the big auto OEMs are making big strike. Basically, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of the uh, of the GM all in from from last year for from the Super Bowl ad actually was that what we saw but basically GM and Ford yeah. and so many others are are getting into this space because you know the tipping point has sort of come like you referenced earlier um will will the big auto equipment manufacturers the auto manufacturers will they take over this space soon like will will they kind of I don't know about leave Tesla in the dust because Tesla's pretty big but but are, are GM and Ford going to muscle a lot of companies out yeah, I mean, that's the million dollar question, right? And and Tesla has the installed base. They have over 60% share of new EV sales, but that share is declining. And that decline, I believe, is inevitable, right? As you have more entrance to market and more models with more body styles at different price points. So, you know, what we see today is that, you know, four GM Hyundai brands are certainly leading the pack with the Maki, -E, the Bolt, the Ionic 5, and even Kia with their EV6. But in comparison, you know, you know, one out of every 10 vehicles is sold that's either a GM, Ford, or Hyundai versus a Tesla. So there's a long way to go in the industry. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I'm optimistic um, that we'll, we'll continue to see more consumer choices. And um, that's really where the, the industry will benefit. Right. Because, because people won't, I mean, the prices will go down with more choice for sure. That's one thing, right? So yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, it, each, each organization has different challenges to overcome. What some of the new EVOEMs have going for them, right, is they have a complete blank slate for software, for supply chain. But, you know, the opposite side of that coin is that, you know, what's new is not always easy, especially in the supply chain world. It might be easier to write your own technology, but if you can't, 
procure the parts, um, that's a challenge as well. So they're just trading, trading costs and benefits. Okay. Um, one thing I've talked about on this show that in the past year um, that I loved was about the Ford F-150 Lightning. So that, that was a big innovation because um, for background, for people who don't know it, the Ford F-150 Lightning, not only do you charge, so you charge your electric truck, but now the energy in that truck can charge other things. It can charge your your camping tools. It can charge, it charge your work tools. It can charge your house, things like that. So there's two-way charging there. What other innovations that, that you know, am I going to encounter along, let's say the next five years that I think are really cool like that one? Are there other ones that, that maybe people aren't that familiar with that you see coming that you know about? Yeah, I, I think there's lots. I think as an industry, we can expect a lot of innovation, but something that's near and dear to me is just innovation that supports equitable EV adoption. And it might be innovation and in access to charging infrastructure, access to used electric vehicles. I think for a true healthy marketplace, we need to make sure that you know EV adoption is equitable. And then truly on the technology side, I think all the innovation, you know, focus for the most part is around the battery pack. Can it mm -hmm. run safer? Can it run more efficiently? How can we have, you know, the, the lowest carbon footprint? So I think we'll continue to see innovation there around, you know, cathode, anode, electrolyte separator technologies. Um, and I also hope to see innovation in charging infrastructure. You know, bi-directional charging is key. I think we need we need to evolve there back to my earlier point on energy storage to make sure that we have a sustainable, optimized grid. Um, but I also think that, um, you know, the innovation that we can expect in the future will be combined with connectivity, um, um, autonomy as well. So the EV will evolve as a computer on wheels. And, mm -hmm. you know, you will see in the near future this truly autonomous, connected electric and shared vehicle. Got it. Okay. Um, how are municipalities impacting electrification? I mean, you know, I know it's probably more so in other countries than this one that that standards are their standards are stricter in, in some European cities, I would imagine. Right. Or so, so I've heard and read and things like that. Um, how are municipalities helping to drive this adoption? Are the, are the standards getting stricter and kind of forcing, let's say, fleets, for instance, into this space maybe even earlier than they might have? Yeah, I think municipalities uh, have proven to be, you know, quote, a great proving ground for electrics. And there are nearly 4 million vehicles owned by municipalities and states today. So there's, there's a pretty good base to work with. And I think it's a great training grounds of sort to prove out, you know, some key assumptions. Yes, with the electric vehicle, there's a lower total cost of operation. It's reducing emissions within a community and you have that real give back to the community. In addition to from an operator perspective, you know, you're saving time, not going to the pump, reduced time spent on maintenance activities. And, you know, Argonne National Lab has a great tool to support analysis for municipalities of, you know, how should I convert my fleet? What types of vehicles are candidate and, and the carbon offset improvements of doing that. And of course, with the Inflation Reduction Act, um, you know, we are starting to see incentives for both new and used to make EVs more accessible, both on the consumer, but also the fleet level. Got it. Okay. Um, uh, related to municipalities, are are the euros ahead of us in adopting EVs? I would say from an EV adoption perspective, you know, Western Europeans are absolutely ahead of us. Um, but we can attribute that to probably a handful of things, you know, in some cases, just 
higher income levels, um, maybe more eco-conscious populations, um, and most importantly, likely is to strong government support in the form of incentives for vehicle purchases, but also in some cases sticks, right? Like low or no emission zones. Mm -hmm. um, but you couple that with really robust charging infrastructure networks. And I think that that has turned into a home run for many European countries. Okay. I was actually going to ask you, can we, what can we learn from them and what can we implement? It sounds like that last part is the place where we can, we can learn and, and, and move forward better, right? I, I think certainly, you know, the charging infrastructure is something we need to address as a nation. Of course, it's harder because there's just more miles to cover. And it's certainly those zones, you know, outside of metropolitan areas, which prove tricky um, from a utilization perspective. And, um, you know, I think, the good news is that the American populace is is really starting to um, understand the challenges associated with climate change. And um, I think we we as a nation are, are stepping with our best foot forward to say we are committed to taking any steps reasonable to improve the environment. OK, so so when I get my I keep telling everybody that when, that comes on this show with me that when we talk about EVs, you know, when I get mine, which is going to be soon, it's not yet, but it's soon. Um, so. When I charge, I'm not going to charge. Someone said to me, he was the CEO for a company called Beam Global, which does solar powered charging station stuff. And what he said was, we've got to get away from the fill up mentality and go to the top off mentality. Does that sound right to you? Um, it, potentially, though. And here's why I'll say potentially, because you know, I think as a, as Americans, right, for, we know through our car purchase data that we purchase the vehicle for the exception. We buy the big SUV because we go to the beach every year. We go to grandma's every Christmas. Um, and kind of similarly that there is a, there's a mental, you know, there's a mindset that we always have to have a full tank. Mm -hmm. So caught up in that somewhere is, I think it's better for the environment if, you know, our population can get comfortable with the fact that you you may not need a 400 mile range. Heck, you don't even yeah. need a 200 mile range. You could probably do 95 to 98 percent of what you need to do with you know 100 mile range. Um, so I think that's that's key point number one. And then point number two is related to charging practices. You know, it is a best practice not to charge your vehicle every day. You know, it, okay. it's best if you, you know, maybe charge it up to 80%, run it down to 20%. And of course, that doesn't really mirror real life. Um, but unlike, you know, where you charge in your cell phone or you plug in your cell phone and charge it daily, hourly, um, and leave that plugged in, you really don't want to do that with your electric vehicle from what we right. know today about battery degradation. Okay. Yeah, I was going to say, you probably don't want to do that with your phone either, but yeah. <laughs> people, but no, I agree. It's more easy to replace. Yeah. But, but to what you just said about the range, it's interesting because people, I, the, the furthest I drive, drive my car other than maybe once a, twice a year is to and from work, which is for yeah. me less than 20 miles. Um, and a lot of people are closer than that. And, um, you know, people go, you know, oh, I, I got to have 250 miles. I don't want that. I want the 350 miles. And it's just kind of not, is it, is it, is waste of money too strong a thing to say to, to buy the battery, to buy the car with the bigger range? Yeah, I mean, I, that's part of it. But, you know, what I'd like to impress is it's also just this unnecessary environmental tax, right? I mean, we have mm -hmm. a, we have a fixed amount of um, capacity today for mining certain metals like cobalt, magnesium manganese 
um, lithium. There's more reserves and we'll get access to those over time, but those that mining and refining process takes a lot of time. So if we can train ourselves early to just use what we need, um, we'll, we'll, be, we'll be able to manage the supply and demand better. Need, needs and wants, that's a tough yeah. conversation for a lot of people, I think. <laughs> um, but yeah, you're right. Uh, so, so can I ask now, related to that, the, the difference between a, a, a battery with a 250 mile range and a battery with a 350 mile range, what what are the without getting too deep into the details, what what are the ramifications of actually creating the battery? Is it bigger? Is it different uh, composition? Like how does that work? Great question, and and there is no universal answer. Um, typically, the battery would be bigger, meaning you'd have more cells connected huh. into modules or sections. But the battery chemistry also plays an important role. And back to your innovation question, you know, there's this um, kind of pull and pull tension, healthy tension is the best way to say it, between a couple of common characteristics of a battery. So energy density, power, safety, life, um, and different metals used in the cathode will yield different outcomes. So... um, cost is obviously an important dimension as well. So currently one example is you see the industry transitioning from um, a common battery chemistry, NMC, to something called LFP, less nickel um, content, which is cheaper, more iron content and LFP. Um, LFP is a great use case for commercial vehicles that has a longer lifetime, um, more energy dense um, and less costly. Um, so you're seeing the industry tinker with the different cells used in battery packs um, for either commercial or fleet consumption. Gotcha. Okay. Um, all right. One question, not necessarily about the other things we've been talking about. Um, what under the radar, are there companies in the transportation industry in general? It could be batteries. It could be EVs. It could be something completely different. Um are there any game changers out there? You see a company doing something really cool, really innovative. You go, wow, I really like that. And I think there's a bright future in in what they're doing. That's a great question. And I think there's tons of innovation. Um, but, you know, for a moment, I'm going to just highlight what we do here at Cox yeah. Automotive Mobility, because I believe, you know, we're under the radar in terms of a game changer for the whole transportation industry. And we fly under the radar, I believe, because we are predominantly B2B. Mm-hmm. Um, so while we might not be as well known to the consumer, we are enabling the consumer through our focus on empowering the next generations of fleets. So that means that your goods coming to your your door, you know, one or two times a day is going to get there on time. And the commercial vehicles that are powering those deliveries are well maintained and supported in their transition to electric. And if you drive an electric vehicle, we obviously want to play an important part in supporting that electric vehicle battery and making sure it has its best first life as well. Um, so, you know, within that context, Cox Automotive Mobility is doing a ton to yep. innovate across the industry and help the industry electrify. Excellent. Okay, I love that. Um, I mean, th- this is just this is the fascinating space, and I'm so glad um, we got to talk about it. Okay, um, folks, you can learn more about Cox Automotive at its website, coxautoinc.com, and on social media platforms such as LinkedIn and Twitter. Lee, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I'd love to talk longer. I'd love to do it again sometime. Thank you so much.
All right, everybody, if you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you're watching or listening. It'll help us get the word out, and we'd really appreciate it. Uh, to learn more about Broadhead HMH, the Transportation Transformation Agency, visit hmhagency.com or find us on all those usual social platforms that I mentioned. For Lee Malloy, I'm John Halpin. Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Future Transportation Podcast.